invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 12, the first 11 verses that were just read for us here. As we've been walking through the Gospel of John, we come to a, a hinge in the, the book, in the letter here. Jesus is soon going to enter Jerusalem, and he's going to be hunting the, the cross as a bloodhound, as unwavered by false sense. Jesus has one mission in mind. But before this holy week, before the passion of Jesus Christ, John records that a Passover is drawing near once again. Many devout followers of God are flooding Jerusalem, seeking to purify themselves so they may enjoy the feast of redemption and forgiveness. And as that's happening, orders have been given to arrest Jesus. While this is happening, then, of course, you've got this feast in another town of Bethany. This feast is taking place with Jesus, and then you've got Mary and even Judas taking center stage. And the beauty engulfs us as we witness the humility and the devotion of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. At this feet, we have a humble, a raised-up Mary who anoints her Savior, acknowledging His glory while she prepares him for his death. As we've read and seen throughout this book, John writes that we might believe. And today we get a glimpse in the life of Mary of what it is that John is looking for. What is it to believe in Jesus Christ? And at this hinge, at the hinge in John's gospel, I think he has Mary, holds up Mary, saying this is what it is to believe in Jesus Christ. That's where we're heading while we head there, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, which is living and active. Would you open our ears and our eyes to behold Christ more clearly, that in the hearing and receiving of your word, we might be transformed more into his image from one degree of glory to the next. In these things we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So, once we finish this section today, to the very end of John's gospel, Jesus approaches his death and, of course, his glorious resurrection, which means that Jesus is the second Adam who will give himself fully to the curse of sin. Remember in Genesis 3, after the fall, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns. And thistles the ground shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust. And to dust you will return. This is the curse that Jesus takes upon himself as he goes towards the cross. Now true is that curse. True is what Jesus is doing. True is all that is and may be. Remember what we, have, what we saw last week, what we encountered last week? We encountered Jesus raising Lazarus. We encountered the resurrection and the life. And that happened in the city of Bethany, a little town outside of Jerusalem. And we return to Bethany once again where Mary takes center stage. And from last week to this week, we'll see that she is not left unchanged. It's a beautiful scene at this feast. But the context of this scene is a little bit um, ominous. Go back to chapter 11 towards the end, verse 53. It says this, So from that day on, they, the Jews, made plans to put him to death. 
Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. So sometime after the resurrection of the raising of Lazarus, Jesus is no longer going out publicly, but he's gone up to Ephraim. And then we have verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest Jesus. And then our passage, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. An arrest seems imminent, and with Passover, a sacrificial lamb is soon to be slain. But before that feast, we have another feast with Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. They're feasting with their Savior. They're feasting with the resurrection and the life. Sacrifice is coming, and the lamb is being made ready. Chapter 12, verse 2 says this. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. The raised from the dead Lazarus reclines at table with his Savior, Jesus Christ. And where would we expect Martha to be? In the kitchen. She's serving And where would we expect Mary to be? At the feet of Jesus. And that's where we find them. Remember how Martha was serving earlier in an earlier occasion and she was a little upset about Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus learning? That occasion comes to mind as we read now another feast. Martha serving again, but no rebuke from Martha comes this time. And we find Mary at his feet once again, verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is actually the third time that we see Mary at the feet of Jesus, her Christ, her anointed one. And here she anoints him. Luke 10 records that scene with the sisterly argument between Martha and Mary because Mary was sitting idly by listening to the teaching of Jesus. Martha slaved away in the kitchen last Sunday. We saw Mary fall at the feet of Jesus again, not to learn from his teaching this time, but she was overcome with sorrow, struck with disappointment, even anger. In effect, she was praying to God, saying, The son whom you sent here sat idly by while my brother lay ill and died. To Jesus, she could have been saying the same thing. You could have done something. Where were you? Why did you not act? A second time at the feet of her Savior. But the beauty of this third occasion overwhelms the other two. The light momentary affliction of a sisterly conflict, or even the death of brother despair. Those things worked in Mary a new life, a raised life, when she beholds the glory of Christ following the raising of Lazarus. There's an incomparable glory to the the conflict and the despair she felt earlier. Both her sufferings earlier and the glory that she experiences are real. See, Jesus' feet... They can walk on water, we know that. 
He has authority over storms, over the waves. It's a symbol that he has authority over the nations, over the Gentiles. In Revelation, we have imagery of those same feet straddling the, the sea and the land. He's, again, master, Lord over Jew and Gentile alike. He's the ruler of all creation. He is king of Jew and Gentile alike. And soon his feet will crush Satan, and every knee will bow at his feet. Every tongue will confess at his feet that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet, at Lazarus' tomb, Mary would just as well have stomped on those feet. The delay of those feet caused such pain allowed death to enter in. But something changed from last week to this week in Mary, didn't it? Jesus' glory paled in comparison to the living, breathing brother, but upon the raising of Lazarus, Mary and then all those around her beheld Jesus in transfigured light. Blinded by his glory, they saw him ever more clearly, and they loved him. So we understand the desire of Lazarus, of Martha and Mary to host a feast with this anointed one, this Christ who loved them and who loved his glory even more. What a privilege to recline with him at table. I mean, the pot roast is ready. The potatoes are done. The green beans and the gravy are in transit. Martha wipes the sweat from her brow and she spies Mary once again neglecting her kitchen duties. But no rebuke crosses mind or lips this time. We have again that Mary, therefore, verse 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. In the same way that Mary's life and actions fill the whole house of this story, the aroma of her devotion is attractive. Why would she anoint Jesus' feet? And why only his feet? Why wipe his feet with oil? Well, remember, priests and kings, those are anointed ones throughout Scripture. They're set apart for divine service. So Jesus is the Christ, and that simply means he is the anointed one, God's anointed one. So it's right that she would be anointing Jesus with the finest the most expensive of ointments. We see Judas later says, we could have gotten a year's worth of wages for that expensive ointment. Why are you wasting it on smelly feet? But we have Jesus, our prophet, priest, and our king, who is being anointed by, her, by his servant, Mary. Anointing is a final preparation before access to God and full service is granted his people. And remember that oil is liquid light. It is reflective Glory. Jesus, the light of the world, is anointed to shine forth his glory most radiantly. And Mary has seen his light now as the resurrection and the life. And she believes. And she responds with a, a holy hospitality. It was customary to wash the feet of your guests. And so she responds with the same hospitality. And she falls in worship before her Savior. Why his feet only? Why not the head, the earlobes, the thumbs or the hands and the feet like the priesthood? Why not that? Why the feet? I don't have a great answer for it, but one thing I do wonder is I wonder if it has to do with the curse of sin that I read at the opening here. Remember, Adam was made of dust, and in his sin, all of 
the dust was cursed. And so as you walk, you collect dust and cursed dust upon your feet. So it was not only hospitable for the Jews to wash the feet of their guests, but there was symbol behind it. You're cleansing off the curse as the, as the guest enters in. Cleansing the guests from the curse so that we might dine together, showing hospitality and love. Now, Mary shows divine hospitality to the sinless one whose feet need no cleansing, and yet she anoints his holy feet. I think this also, why his feet? I think also it looks forward, because soon, in just a few chapters, we will see that Jesus washes feet of his disciples. And, and Peter even asks, well, why only my feet? And we'll get to that when it comes time. But I think this here shows us what it is to believe and to follow Jesus, but it also is a precursor to say, here's what Jesus is doing and commissioning his followers to do as well. Like Mary, Jesus humbles himself. He serves his disciples that they might go and do likewise. Well, all of them to do likewise except, of course, Judas, verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he, was, yeah, he w who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. They're at Bethany. The name Bethany, Beth, means city, and Annie means trouble or poor. Jesus is in the house of the poor, and he's humbling himself to recline at table with those who are poor in spirit. He enters in, and poor as these people might be, they give their very best to their Savior and Lord. Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the year's worth of wages ointment. Like a widow giving her last coin, the poor here are given access to the kingdom of God in the presence of Jesus Christ. And what does Judas do? He sneers at the scene. He rises to full stature to rebuke this loving action, calling it a waste. I think secretly he was probably enjoying the fragrance, though. John gives insight into the betrayer's inner workings. John tells us he's a thief. He doesn't care about the lost sheep or the poor citizens of Beth Annie. Mary anoints her good shepherd, but Judas is a wolf in sheep's clothing that comes only to steal. There's contrasting visions here, isn't there, of Mary who was angry and disappointed at Jesus but now falls at his feet in worship, and Judas who had been at the feet of Jesus listening to him for years. This is the third Passover that, that Judas has spent with Jesus. And still his own passions, his own desires remain the center or the sun about which his life orbits. Mary humbles herself, casts off reputation as she lets down her hair in public. She offers the very best for the glory of Jesus Christ. And as hearers of the story, we identify with these characters one way or the other. What I want us to see is that, that chapter 11, from the very beginning of it to the end of our story, it's all connected. It's all one unit here where we transfer from, from disappointment and anger and, and the deepest of fears to resurrection life where we feast with our King and a transformed Mary loving and serving Jesus is the apple of His eye 
and the model for faith or for belief. Why the close connection? Well, at the beginning of chapter 11, John makes the connection for us. In 11 verse 2, it said, he introduced the characters. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. When I was reading that last week for the sermon, I was like, I don't remember this story happening yet. It was because it's this week. But John is already cluing us in last week's message that this is coming. And that's why I think this all holds together. It's two pieces of the same story. See, what happens at the end of our section in chapter 12 is that hinge in John's gospel. A lot of times commentators refer to the first 11 or so chapters as the book of signs. And then the week of his passion follows. So we're concluding the first book of John's gospel, if you will. And it's significant that we have a character like Mary at the very conclusion to show us what it is to believe as Jesus enters his week of passion, his death, and his resurrection. What we see from Mary is a love for Jesus' glory that surpasses her own glory, her own reputation, a love for her own possessions, a love for the glory of Jesus that surpasses all earthly desires. We see, see, see Mary died in last week's passage when Jesus failed to show up. There was a type of death. But then there was also a type of death when Lazarus is raised. A piercing glory is, is seen, is felt, is tasted as Jesus shows that he is the resurrection and the life. And he gives a taste of what that means, even if it's only for a short time, with Lazarus. She's been raised now to bow at the feet of her king, to worship at the feet of her healer, her savior, her shepherd. Having beheld his power in last week's passage, she now identifies herself completely, unabashedly, as a servant of this anointed one. And her death and resurrection is the story of faith, of belief, is the story of our deaths and resurrection in Jesus Christ, not just once, but throughout all our days as we seek to follow Jesus. We have Jesus as the good shepherd, and he does not reject Mary as she's bitter with him, as she's angry at him. He doesn't reject her at Lazarus' tomb. He doesn't correct her. He simply weeps with her. He didn't alleviate the pain and the suffering, nor did he turn from her accusatory anger. This expensive ointment is, is no small offering, yet it pales in comparison to the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. And yet he humbly accepts this worship and praise from his beloved friend, Mary. Jesus says earlier, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And though she's attacked by Judas, Jesus defends her worship. We read in verse 7, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, traditionally, Lent is a season where we focus on serving the poor more uh, pointedly, to give of our time, our talents, our treasures to minister to the needs of the poor, of those in the city of the poor or Beth Annie. So Jesus is not discouraging giving to the poor here when he says you'll always have the poor with you. His point is rather that the bridegroom is soon to depart. 
And while the bridegroom remains, the bride and those with her in the wedding party ought to be feasting extravagantly. The rebuke is because Judas and all who disbelieve are choosing things other than Jesus as the first and the best. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And the scene goes on when large crowds, verse 9, when the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's like all that hard work to raise Lazarus from the dead, and they're going to undo it. They're seeking to kill Lazarus as well. If anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. As our scene concludes, it's a local curiosity, this feast, and it reveals the heart of man. Many are coming just to see a miracle worker at table. Some believed, and some disbelieved, and some loved death more than life seeking not only Jesus' death, but Lazarus as well. They longed to see this one, this anointed one, die. Throughout John's gospel, when you read through it again, you'll see it. He's continually escaping like the wind. He's in crowds, and he just passes through. They're surrounding him. They're hounding him, and he just passes through. But from this point on in John's gospel, he will not be passing through. Verse 7 again says this, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The winds are changing. This anointing is a precursor to Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his burial. He says it even here. Leave her alone. Let her keep what remains of this ointment for the day of my death and burial. Longing to serve Jesus in his life, Mary serves him also in his death, anticipating the mixture of myrrh and aloes that would later anoint the Savior's body in the tomb. John's gospel leads us every sentence towards the tragedy of his crucifixion and his death, which is met only in the infinite joy of his resurrection. All along the way, we have seen signs of Jesus' glory, that's the book of signs. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him heal a lame man, a blind man. He multiplies loaves and fishes to feed multitudes. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And now the signs will cease. Eyes of faith must now guide the way. The great I am has come in the flesh. We've been hearing Jesus bear witness about who he is. He says, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. He says, I am the gate or the doorway. I am the good shepherd. I am the one who before Abraham was, I am. And now, right before Jesus passes into the city gates of Jerusalem for his final week, full of rejection, full of false accusation, full of betrayal, a sentence of death is carried out, the burial that, that we have before us, is to be done. The beauty of this scene will ring throughout that week of Jesus' suffering and death. John intends it so, as he had written at the end of his letter, these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. John closes the book of signs with the example of Mary believing in Jesus, giving herself to him and the worship of him, that she might have life in him. See, since the fall and the curse of sin, the stench of death has overwhelmed us all, and all will be swallowed by death's insatiable appetite. But as the aroma of that ointment filled the house of feasting, so the aroma of Jesus' death must overwhelm our sinful desires. The aroma of Jesus' life must fill us to overflow. And this Jesus, and this is what Jesus promises for all who drink of him. He promises the living water. And whoever drinks of him, their lives will then well up with living water. That whoever eats of him will eat of the bread and find life. John writes that people might believe in Jesus, and Mary pictures that beautifully. She's kneeling before God's anointed one, humbly giving glory to him through simple acts of love and devotion. See, that curse of sin for Jesus and for us, was, it was not removed in the cleansing or anointing of Jesus' feet, as proper and beautiful as it was. Those well-worn and well-trodden feet that journey with us in the curse-ridden dirt, they, they remain untainted, yet she anointed still. The curse was not broken there, but it was broken on the cross, where, the, where those feet of Jesus, they were to crush the head of Satan and to demolish the sting of death. And yet Jesus' hands, his feet were pierced for our transgressions. Jesus humbly received this uh, humble and loving act of devotion from his beloved friend Mary. And so he receives us in humility as we come to him. And so we come humbly this morning. And in coming, we are kneeling at the feet of our Savior. We come to bless his name for removing the curse of sin. We ask his feet to move swiftly to conquer our enemies in our hearts, in our churches, in our world. Our very lives are to be given as an anointing oil. We are then to be crushed, to be pressed by the mysterious will of God that we might become the fragrant aroma of Jesus and his life to a watching world. As Mary was crushed last week, so we see today that she was raised also in adoration to praise at the feet of Jesus. We too will know disappointment and death, and yet we have seen his glory. He who raises us from the dead to bow at his feet in glorious worship now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have given us your Son. And in him, Lord, would you strengthen us, give us courage to serve you in all ways that you call us to. We're thankful for this life of Mary held before us now. Would you please accept our simple acts of love and devotion that we might grow in your image. We pray this in your dear name, Jesus. Amen.